You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me look at you. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm recording this in between randos walking in and out of my apartment, trying to fix the pipes because apparently one of my neighbors has been flushing wipes down the drain, and now the sewage is backing up into everybody's tubs. Good times. Love living in an apartment building. But you didn't come here to hear me complain about the shitty pipes in my apartment building, so let's get to the stuff. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got Candyman and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. First, Candyman. I'm a big fan of the original and pretend the other two don't exist, so I was ecstatic when I heard that Jordan Peele was doing a straight sequel from the first one. This movie treats the character of Candyman as more of an allegory for violence against African-American people and the frustration it incites within the culture. I like the way they expanded on the Candyman lore so it just wasn't the one dude. And the film is very well done. But my biggest issue with this film is that at 97 minutes, I didn't feel like everything was as flushed out as it could have been. But the gore's great and it's scary, so... It's a, it's a great horror movie, if nothing else. Next, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Again, I'm biased because I love Marvel movies. I'm simple that way. But this one is above and beyond phenomenal. The action's great. The characters are relatable. And it has one of the best climactic fight scenes in the MCU. Simu Liu, who plays Shang-Chi, did a great job and has handled his transition both on screen and off from television actor to Marvel superhero like it was nothing. He, the dude's a natural. I cannot wait to see what he does next. All right. New month, new theme. This month, we're looking at the histories of four films and how they ended up getting the cult classic status that they enjoy today. Some for good, some for bad, some for the weird, some for just sheer power of will. But at the end of the day, they have all left audiences with an indelible impression and joy for their most fervent fans. Critics and box office be damned. So what quantifies as a cult classic film? Generally speaking, it's a film that failed critically and financially at the box office at the time of its release that has a passionate fan base that formed in the years following its initial release in spite of the failure it was seen as upon its release. I think I said release like 80 times. It's fine. This week we're covering probably the quintessential cult classic film, the one that asks you to do the time warp again and again and again. That's right. Today we're covering the history of the Rocky Horror Picture Show from its origins as a stage play, the production of the original film, and the film's journey into cult classic status. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Michael Rennie 
was ill the day the earth stood still But he told us where we stand And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear Claude Rains was the invisible man Then something went wrong for Fay Ray and King Kong They got caught in a cellular jam Then at a deadly pace It came from outer space And this is how the message ran Science fiction It was the early 1970s in London, and gigging actor Richard O'Brien needed something to do to pass the winter time between gigs. O'Brien, whom had been born in the UK but raised in New Zealand, had grown up with a passion for science fiction and B-movies and wanted to combine elements from those films with 1950s rock and roll music and Steve Reeves' films to make a glam rock musical, which was very in vogue at the time. At least glam rock was. For those like me who have seen the film a whole bunch of times but never recognized the reference within the song Sweet Transvestite, Steve Reeves was a Scottish bodybuilder turned actor whose films were known for flood his <clears throat> body of work in the sword and sandal genre, which were Italian-made historical epic films. Think like Hercules, Goliath, Sandokan, just big muscly dudes wearing lots of body oil and skimpy shorts. O'Brien conceived and wrote the play set against the backdrop of the glam era that had manifested itself throughout British popular culture in the early 1970s. He has stated that, quote, glam rock allowed me to be myself more, allowing his concept to come into being. Glam rock was a musical trend that came out of the early 1970s UK. The easiest way to describe what this was is basically just think early David Bowie. The outrageous makeup, costumes, glitters, platform shoes, androgyny was the name of the game. The movement also took inspiration from the science fiction films that Richard O'Brien was drawing from for his pet project. While he never expected to put the show into production, this was just something to keep him busy, O'Brien eventually took his partially finished manuscript, then called They Came From Denton High, to Australian director Jim Sharman. O'Brien had worked for Sharman in his production, and the first London production, of Jesus Christ Superstar in 1972. It was for only one performance, but hey, sometimes that's all it takes. Reading the section of the manuscript O'Brien had given him and hearing the song Science Fiction Double Feature, Sharman was intrigued at how weird it was and gave O'Brien a £2,000 budget to put the show on in a small experimental theater space in Chelsea. When it came to casting the project, Sharman and O'Brien primarily relied on friends and acquaintances to take on the roles. For example, Sharman brought aboard fellow Aussie and frequent collaborator Nell Campbell, whom would be credited as Little Nell, to play Columbia, whom is a groupie of the mysterious Dr. Frankenfurter, whom would be played by Tim Curry. Curry had run into O'Brien accidentally on purpose, leaving the gym next to Curry's home at the time. He had worked with O'Brien in a production of Hair and sought him out to get a role in the production. When Curry successfully ran into O'Brien, 
at the gym a few doors down from his apartment, O'Brien told Curry he was looking for a muscly dude who could sing. After chatting for a little bit, O'Brien told Curry to reach out to Sharman about the role and to get a copy of the script. He did, read the script, and realized, quote, boy, if this works, it's going to be a smash. Tim Curry was immediately cast upon auditioning and was given relative creative freedom with the character of Dr. Frankenfurter, originally playing the character with a German accent before deciding that his character shouldn't just be a queen, but the queen, and emulated her accent within the role. Rounding out the cast in roles they would eventually reprise in the film included O'Brien himself as Riff Raff and Patricia Quinn as Magenta, whom had worked with O'Brien several times before as Dr. Frankenfurter's domestics. Mere days before opening, the show would be renamed from They Came From Denton High to The Rocky Horror Show. The Rocky Horror Show premiered at the Royal Court's 63-seat upstairs theater on June 19, 1973, and ran until July 20, 1973. The play was an almost instantaneous smashing success. It was campy, it was creative, it was weird as hell, and most importantly, it made money. The popularity of the show at the Royal Court upstairs allowed the production to be transferred to the nearby 230-seat Chelsea Classic Cinema, where it ran from August 14, 1973 to October 20, 1973. Rocky Horror then found a quasi-permanent home at the 500-seat Kings Road Theater, another cinema house, where it ran from November 3, 1973 until March 31, 1979. The Rocky Horror Show would make its U.S. premiere at the Roxy in Los Angeles on March 24, 1974, with only Tim Curry from the original cast reprising his role in the nine-month-long production. Additional productions popped up in Sydney, Australia, followed by another one in Melbourne. When the L.A. production closed, much of the original cast reconvened in London, not for another stage production, but to shoot a motion picture. It's just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips. The Rocky Horror Show, which had proven the power of word-of-mouth marketing with its massive popularity, had also caught the attention of 20th Century Fox. Yes, this means that Disney now owns the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Through Lou Adler, an owner of the Roxy Theater in Los Angeles, Richard O'Brien and Jim Sharman were introduced to Gordon Stolberg. Stolberg had been hired in 1971 by Fox to oversee the struggling studio, whom was in active danger of being reclaimed by the banks, whom they owed a ton of money. It involved something about nearly bankrupting the studio to make a Cleopatra movie in the 1960s. You know, oops. 
Stolberg, who had started his career as a lawyer, was given the very difficult task to turn around the studio's financial fortunes which he did to varying degrees of success. He would be the one that brought the original Star Wars film to the studio in the mid-1970s, after all. But first, he did this. Stahlberg had seen a performance of the Rocky Horror Show and offered O'Brien and Sharman a deal to make a film version of Rocky Horror with a reportedly really big budget, under the caveat that they cast known actors in the role. For example, Elvis had reportedly been interested in playing Eddie, the ex-delivery boy, and Vincent Price had reportedly been approached to play the criminologist. O'Brien and Sherman refused this part of the agreement and turned down the entire offer as a result, wanting the original actors from the show to play their original roles wherever possible. Fox accepted their demands with some amendments, but O'Brien and Sherman would have to make the film with a drastically reduced budget, just $1.4 million, and would have to hire American actors to join the cast. To meet this part of the agreement, actors Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon were cast as Brad and Janet, a newly engaged couple and the hero and heroine of the story. Jonathan Adams, who had played the criminologist in the original show, was cast as Dr. Everett Scott, Brad and Janet's former professor and a rival scientist to Dr. Frankenfurter. American singer Meatloaf, whom had played Eddie and the criminologist in the L.A. production of the show, was brought on to just play Eddie. Fashion model Peter Henwood was cast to play Rocky, Frankenfurter's creation, whom was based on vintage bodybuilder Charles Atlas. Musician Trevor White would provide the singing voice for Rocky, as Henwood was not a trained singer. Richard O'Brien, Tim Curry, Patricia Quinn, and Nell Campbell all reprised the roles they'd originated. The film was renamed The Rocky Horror Picture Show for obvious reasons, and production on the film commenced on October 21st, 1974, after a two-week period during which they recorded the soundtrack. The film was partially shot at Bray Studios, which was the home for the Hammer Horror films, which included Christopher Lee's infamous Dracula franchise. In fact, the film extensively repurposed props from old Hammer films, including the tank Rocky is brought to life in, which was unsurprisingly used as a birthing tank in a Hammer Frankenstein film. Other notable reused props was the Coffin Grandfather Clock, which had a real skeleton inside of it, unbeknownst to the cast at the time. The skeleton was that of a woman's husband whom had commissioned the clock. I couldn't find a solid source on the clock lady or her skeleton husband, but Sotheby's sold the clock in 2002 for 35,000 pounds, so it's still out there somewhere, which is fun, I guess. I wonder if he wanted to be a clock. Probably not. Would anyone want to be a clock? Anyway, the costume department had a measly 1,600-pound budget and were designed by Sue Blaine, whom had worked with Tim Curry on the stage play The Maids. On that show, she had designed a leather corset for Curry and managed to borrow it from another production and added a leather jacket covered in pins and chains for the film. This look reportedly inspired the manager of the punk band The Sex Pistols, therefore making Sue Blaine a contributing fashion design icon to the British punk scene. Other costumes included repurposed hammer production pieces as well as costumes from the stage play that Sue reworked. The exterior of the mansion was Oakley Court, a gothic country house in Windsor, which had also been used extensively in Hammer horror films. The building was owned by a French ambassador, 
whom was more than happy to rent the place out to local production companies for filming. The production shot extensively inside and out of Oakley Court, which was not in great shape. For the first view of Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff, for example, when he sinks through the window of the mansion during Over at the Frankenstein's Place, Richard O'Brien is actually standing on the roof beams for the lower floor ceiling as water damage had rotted away the floor. The manor also had no running water, no heating, and no bathrooms. The church at the opening is a facade or false front, meaning that only the front of the building was built and featured the first of many painting homages that Charmin wanted to interject into the film. If you watch it after the episode this week, look out for Grant Wood's American Gothic, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Da Vinci's The Last Supper, and James McNeil Whistler's Mother. The latter has a cameo from one of the cast members as well. See if you can figure out who it is without little Google. Additionally, Charmin made sure that each scene was like a literal Easter egg hunt and hid Easter eggs in each scene for future viewers to find. And most of you modern film watchers probably think it's like little nods to certain things. No, it's literal Easter eggs like Jesus rising from the dead. So we go find the eggs, Easter eggs. While this is more commonplace using other items within films now, especially in franchise films, the official coining of the term didn't occur until the 1980s, but it is likely that Charmin was one of the first filmmakers to popularize this trend. Unfortunately, there aren't as many eggs as there could have been in the final cut of the film as they were not replaced on the set when the film went through extensive reshoots. For the time warp sequence, the filmmakers casted stage extras as well as O'Brien's wife and stage veteran Christopher Biggins. The dance was in part inspired by the dance sequence in Jean-Luc Godard's film Bond I Par, which would also inspire the John Travolta Uma Thurman dance sequence in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. In the lab set during the song Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul, the stuntman for Meatloaf that rode the bike into the laboratory set during the song had the motorcycle fall on him, which broke his leg in multiple places. Any shots that had been planned showcasing the bike had to be reworked as the bike had been damaged in another shot when it fell from the ramp. Meatloaf was pushed around in a wheelchair with a motorcycle windshield and handlebars stuck on the front to get enough coverage for the sequence. If you watch the scene in hindsight, you can kind of tell, but it was a pretty well done cheat. I'm not going to lie, especially when you factor in the low budget. It was just very it was a very smart cheat. Another issue that came up in the lab set as well is that it was kind of based on the stage play one, which meant that there was no door built in because on the stage play, you just come in from the wings, which required the character of Dr. Scott to have to burst through the wall of the lab in one scene because oops, no door. When it came to the dinner scene where the cast sings Eddie or Eddie's Teddy, as you might better remember it, you may notice some odd things on the table. Notably, many of the items on the dinner table are medical equipment, including sample jars and a bedpan. This was done to allude to the fact that the Transylvanians were in fact aliens and actually had no idea how to put on a dinner party. At the end of the song, when Frankenfurter whips off the tablecloth, revealing Eddie's mutilated body, the fact that Eddie was underneath the table was unknown to the majority of the cast at the time, so all the reactions that you see in that scene of them freaking out are genuine. The final floor show is rife with references to the horror movies Richard O'Brien had been inspired by when he wrote the show. For example, Magenta has hair very reminiscent of The Bride from Bride of Frankenstein. 
The RKO logo backdrop, rumor has it, was originally supposed to be a Fox one, but because the movie was a little bit of a sexy movie, it has been reported that Fox didn't want their logo playing behind the scene, so they opted for the defunct RKOs instead. It honestly makes more sense, as the B-movies Richard O'Brien was inspired by were perfected by RKO. It was also during the shooting of this scene, which involved an extensive underwater sequence, that both Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon came down with the flu. Sarandon's morphed into full-fledged pneumonia. The film wrapped shooting in December of 1974, just in time for Christmas. On the last day, Charmin commissioned Patricia Quinn to provide her lips for the opening song, Science Fiction Double Feature. The originally proposed opening sequence was to contain clips of various films mentioned in the lyrics, as well as the idea that the first few sequences would be shot in black and white, a la Wizard of Oz, but this was deemed too expensive and was ultimately scrapped. In the stage play, Patricia, dressed as an usherette, would sing the song, but for the film, the song is sung by Richard O'Brien with Patricia lip-syncing. This was meant to amp up the androgynous nature of the glam rock genre and therefore the movie. The disembodied bright red lips were inspired by a Man Ray painting called The Lovers, which features a pair of disembodied lips against a cloudy sky. The painting also reportedly inspired the red lips of the Rolling Stones logo. Strangely, Patricia's lips were not the ones featured in the promotional materials. Those belonged to a model whom was paid $120 for the gig. Hope Girl got royalties. I doubt she did, though. It took about eight months to edit the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and on August 14, 1975, the film debuted in London at the Rialto Theater, followed by a September 26th opening in Los Angeles at the UA Westwood. The film tanked everywhere but at the UA Westwood. The film was not widely promoted, and many people walked out of the film due to its sexually promiscuous themes. Since the film was made on the cheapy cheap, it was ultimately shelved by Fox after just one weekend in theaters. Its premieres in other cities were unceremoniously canceled. Sometimes a stage show on the big screen just gets lost in translation. To add insult to injury, the stage play had made its Broadway debut in a blink-and-you-miss-it run of 45 performances in early 1975, a few months before the film premiered. It looked as if the Rocky Horror Picture Show was dead on arrival. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. So, come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. But maybe the rain is really to blame. So I'll remove the cause. <laughs> but not the symptom. For most films that basically get locked up deep in its studio's vaults, this might spell the end of that film ever making an impact. So it was not the case for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
A year after its teeny-tiny, disastrous theatrical run, a member of the marketing department at Fox suggested to his bosses that they let Rocky Horror take a shot at the midnight film circuit. The cultures surrounding midnight screenings had been around for a minute at this time, thanks to other campy, offbeat films like John Waters' Pink Flamingos. The first attempt at Rocky Horror as a midnight show was made at the Waverly Theater in New York. The film was mostly viewed by clientele that the original play had spoken to, and slowly but surely word spread. Fans of the stage play were also impressed with its faithful adaptation from its stage play to the movie. The film spoke to a generation of repressed young people and allowed them to express themselves in a room with like experienced individuals and proved that, like the play, the power of word of mouth was alive and well. The film then, slowly but surely, opened widely in other countries and found popularity, especially in the UK, Germany, and Australia. In fact, in Germany, at the Museum Lichtspiel, the film has played consistently since 1977, meaning Rocky Horror has the distinction of having the longest continuous theatrical run of any film in cinematic history. Another big thing for Rocky Horror has been the interactive midnight shows. As the midnight shows spread during the re-release, theater owners noticed that the same people were coming back show after show. After a while, those audience members began parroting back popular lines from the film and making up some of their own to scream at the screen. On April Fool's Day 1976, a trio of school teachers whom attended together at the Riverside Twin Theater in Texas, the second theater to have the film re-released in, are credited with having started the practice of talking back to the screen, bringing props, and making up one-liners. The purpose of this was basically to make one another laugh, but soon it took on a life of its own. They had no idea that in doing all of this, they create something that would last decades and essentially made all of these actions into a ritualistic practice in art appreciation and participation. Today, there are dozens of rules and cues and even kits and props to interact with the film at these screenings. I don't want to ruin all or any of what happens for newbies who might be interested in attending. Those of y'all who've been to one know why. And I highly recommend that if there is one near you, to go because it's so much fun. Pre-pandemic, there are about 100 theaters in the U.S. showing the film on a regular basis. I will say, just to kind of get you prepared, you're going to need a noisemaker, rice, a water gun, toilet paper, a newspaper, and a costume at the very least. Oh, and make sure you tell them it's your first time. Don't, Don't worry about why. Today, the film has made over $140 million, a hundred times more than what it costs to make. To give you an idea of how much of a success this film has become, studios typically consider three times what it costs to make and market as a success. So yeah, this is, this is a huge success for Fox in hindsight. In 1981, a kind of sequel was released called Shock Treatment, which was written by Sharman and O'Brien. The film continued the story of Brad and Janet, played by different actors this time, whom are now married and find that their hometown has been turned into a TV station. They then find themselves trapped within a game show. While O'Brien's signature music and bizarreness is on full display in this film, Shock Treatment has failed to gain the fervent fan base that Rocky has. It's like one of those where you're like, I see what you're doing. It's just not Rocky. 
To date, there have been over 50 professional productions of the Rocky Horror Show, God knows how many community theater ones, and this show has been translated into 11 languages. Beyond its cult status, the play is often hailed alongside other experimental theater works such as Hair, noting the play's influence on the counterculture and sexual liberation movements that continued on after the 1960s. Rocky Horror was one of the first popular musicals to depict fluid sexuality during a time of division between generations and a lack of acceptance of non-heterosexual individuals. Richard O'Brien has stated that the stage play and the film is a celebration of difference that allows marginalized communities to gather and coexist, which it has done beautifully for nearly 50 years. 20th Century Fox had a long-standing policy that offered most of the films in its archives to any theater who requested them, thus allowing older films to receive theatrical showings far longer than other studios' films. As a result of this policy and of the frequent requests for Rocky Horror, it has remained in continuous circulation since its release. The Walt Disney Company ended this policy when it acquired 20th Century Fox in 2019, but so far it has made an exception for the Rocky Horror Picture Show because of its history as a midnight film cult classic, and probably because they don't want to piss off the fans of the film. I wouldn't want to piss them off, so I really hope I'm doing a good job here. Speaking of things fans hate, fans of the stage show and movie really didn't like the 2016 quote-unquote remake which most, including me, saw as an opportunity to make some cash off the fervor of the Rocky Horror name. It aired on network TV for Christ's sake. There wasn't a snowball's chance in hell they were going to do that film justice with a TV 14 rating. It's just not gonna happen. I watched like maybe the first 20 minutes and then just noped right out of there. I couldn't do it. It was it was so just no, 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 no. For me, this film was another piece of media that I was probably too young to view when I saw it. I was like 13 or 14 at the time. And I remember to this day showing it to a group of girlfriends at a high school sleepover my freshman year at my friend Kate's house. Kate's a listener. Hey, Kate. Even though her mom knew we were watching Rocky Horror at the time, it actually like came down and danced the time warp a little bit before telling us that she couldn't believe we were watching this movie. So she was super cool about us watching it. It still felt like we were watching so Something that we shouldn't, as it was a very different world from that rural Catholic schoolgirl life we were experiencing at the time. And it's been about 16 years since that night, don't do the math, and watching that movie with my friends that night and every time I've introduced it to someone since remain as some of my favorite nights with loved ones. It's just, that's what that film is for me. It's honestly, it's a film that I kind of use to gauge how cool people are because if they go, ugh, that was weird, I hate it, they're not my friend anymore. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a film for the sci-fi horror musical theater drag lovers, a film for the weird ones, a film that provided a venue for people to experience with other like-minded individuals, to convene without the fear of persecution in a time when society would persecute and prosecute anyone whom didn't fit within the majority of what society deemed acceptable. A film that allowed for people from all walks of life to coexist and let loose and watch a real weird movie. A film that will have you doing the time warp and has had people doing the time warp for decades and decades to come.
And that's going to do it for this week. I forgot to record last night, so I am sweaty. There's a beeping car, screaming children, and apparently we've got some Santa Ana wind, so that's making the windows rattle. So, great. (laughs) If there's anything you want me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the making and cult classic status of the film that's so bad it's good, The Room. The only thing weirder about this movie is the dude that made it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Science fiction Double feature Yeah.